Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We have a delightful conversation for all of you listeners today, as I am joined by former Texas A&M All-American, and at the time of recording this intro, a player now up to a new career high of number 56 in the live doubles rankings. I, of course, am referring to Jackson Withrow, who joins me on the show today to discuss life as a top 100 doubles player. Certainly, there are plenty of highlights in the career of Jackson Withrow, but wanted to talk about the differences he sees between the singles and doubles life. Wanted to talk about the constant dosi doing that happens in professional doubles as each player looks for that perfect partner that help, will help them get to the top of the ATP doubles rankings. And then I wanted to talk about the ways he works on his game, how he's seen the game of doubles change throughout his time as a professional, why college tennis was the right path pathway for him and so much more. It truly is a delightful conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, shout out to our friends at Swing Vision for their support of this podcast. They're at the forefront of all developments regarding artificial intelligence happening within the sport to have access to everything. All you got to do is download the Swing Vision app today. What you do to use it is you set up your phone on a back fence or on a back curtain while you are playing your hitting session and then playing your hitting session while you're hitting out on court and you hit record. Let the Swing Vision app record your playing session. It'll then break it down for you as soon as you're done. It'll show you the makes. It'll show you the misses, whether it be forehand, backhand, volley, serves, you name it. All the information is going to be available to you in the palm of your hand. All you got to do, download that Swing Vision app today. You can learn more by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast. Use our promo code CRACK20. When you do inevitably sign up, you'll get 20% off plus a free 14-day pro trial. You'll also let them know we sent you there, which is greatly appreciated on our end. Again, to learn more, click on that link in the description to this podcast, Swing Vision. Proud sponsor of the Cracked Interviews podcast. With that said, let's get to it. My comment conversation with the one and only Jackson Withrow. Hey, crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link to get signed up? Just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website. You set up your account. You download the app. You get rocking and rolling. Get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. 
Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a man you may know best as a former All-American during his time at Texas A&M. Of course, he's subsequently gone on to capture an ATP doubles title at the 2018 Delray Beach Open, a two-time ATP doubles finalist, 12-time ATP challenger champion, and the current world number 63 in the ATP doubles rankings. Welcome on to the Cracked Interviews podcast, our friend Jackson Withrow. Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Yeah, man, doing great. Ready to rock and roll and uh, appreciate you guys for having me on. Oh, it is our pleasure. And that's quite the resume you've built up, by the way. Pretty impressive. When you got to go through four bullet points before you get to the name, that means you've done some pretty cool things in your career. But uh, obviously, a lot I want to touch on today. Let's just start with that 2018 season. You make the final in Ecuador with a former Aggie, Austin Krejcik. You win the doubles title in Delray with Jack Sock. I'm curious which one means more to you because obviously two Aggies having ATP success, pretty cool. But, you know, you and Jack did some pretty good things in doubles back in the juniors as well. So I'm curious which was the more surreal moment for you in, you know, at the time. Yeah, I think it's tough taking the title away. Um, I think I'd have to rank that as number one, um, especially doing it with Jack uh, at the time and was obviously able to do a lot of great things with him as well on the court. Uh, you know, had a lot of accolades there and kind of things to go back to, to where, you know, we feel pretty proud of what we've been able to do. And, um, you know, shame that we couldn't have played more, but, uh, you know, at the same time, it's been pretty awesome to experience that. It really kind of, I think that year in itself 2018 was kind of that transcending year for me um kind of got myself into a position to finally feel comfortable to make a career out of this and um to keep going but uh you know austin's always been a close friend of mine um been a teammate and uh you know that year alone we we did some pretty cool things and um to be down there in ecuador playing at 10,000 feet was a little different for me um <laughs> I didn't play well that week, so maybe that's why I didn't like it as much. But uh, Austin definitely (laughs) carried us to that final. No, I imagine that's got to be a fun month when you make uh, back-to-back or, you know, two ATP finals within a single month. And I'm curious because I know looking back and, look, I'm a high school tennis nerd as well. Some of those experiences I still think about fondly. I was actually on the phone with my dad yesterday, and, you know, in Michigan we play – boys high school tennis in the fall and I was like dad if this was a Thursday a decade ago you'd be getting ready for a duel match and coming to watch me play and you know I know you were someone who played high school tennis as well and again we're going to jump all over the place today I'm sure this is exactly where you expected us to start yeah, exactly but, I love it, uh, love it. Ne- Nebraska high school tennis not exactly known for its prowess no disrespect to the o- Omaha community <laughs> you know very frequently we see players of your caliber, the blue chip guys, the five-star guys who are playing all these national events, skip high school tennis. Uh, You're obviously a professional doubles player. The team aspect of the sport must appeal to you. Uh, But why in your youth days when perhaps you didn't receive the most challenges, and I'm looking here, three-time high school state champion, you know, why play those high school days when maybe the level of competition wasn't always where it needed to be? Yeah, um, my dad was big into kind of the team aspect, Um, being a baseball player himself, um, kind of found myself wanting to be involved in some sort of team, you know, being tennis, you're so individualized. 
um, you know, eventually got into high school tennis and just thought it was a way to, I don't know, see where I was against some of these older guys. You get to play against, you know, three, four years older players and um, see how they develop. But uh, at the time, Omaha tennis actually, you know, believe it or not, had some had some players that they ended up cranking out. A couple of players that went to Nebraska and played some other small schools outside the state. Um, but uh, our group growing up um, had a pretty good class. We had three guys that were all inside the top 100 going in from 14s, 16s, and then eventually off into 18s. It died off a little bit. But another player, Anthony Delcor, who played at Wake Forest, um, was there. You know, we, we had a couple of battles uh, in, in high school and unfortunately didn't have any in college. But, uh, you know, still great friends today. And we kind of give ourselves a hard time for playing because it may have distracted us from, uh, you know, some other events. But definitely well worth it. Enjoyed playing and uh, actually just saw one of my old high school teammates at the U.S. Open here a few weeks ago. He came out to watch and uh, it was pretty cool seeing him. You mentioned the baseball background. This is a random note. I've obviously had the chance to attend some of your matches. You played third base. You had to have. I refuse to believe anything other. At some point in your career, you were a third baseman. Center, center and short. Yeah. Okay. So I got the side of the infield, right? I was going to say, you could right. also probably, I'm guessing at 12 years old, you could hit like 72 on the radar gun. And then you're like, you know what? I'm not going to pitch anymore. No, I've, I've clocked, uh, clocked 90 before. So I've, uh, yeah, I've tried toning it down and just saving it for the serve. So I'm not throwing my arm out too yeah. much. <laughs> no, you Nebraska boys got the live arms. That's what we've, that's what we're learning uh, more right. and more. And, you know, for you, I'm so fascinated always by that team experience in tennis because for me personally, it was everything. Like to have the opportunity to play this individual sport within the team framework. I mean, obviously, you were a high level junior. I'm sure college was always in your plans, but, you know, was it the team aspect, you know, how you enjoyed high school tennis? Did that appeal similarly, I imagine, as you're making your college processes, that team aspect and being able to compete in it once more? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I, you know, I took my visits, uh, I went to Oklahoma, A&M, um, UCLA and Florida state. Um, and A&M, I mean, I, I still give coach Denton a hard time. You know, A&M was my worst visit that I was on. Um, it was rainy. Uh, the football team almost lost to Florida international. Um, <laughs> they, two of my future teammates ended up getting in a fight with each other. Um, but I think the thing that drew me there is, you know, kind of that aspect of how close the team was. Um, you know, it was almost like a brotherly type fight. And being an only child for myself, I felt like, you know, I get to I get to choose a place where I'm choosing, you know, eight to ten brothers um, to spend the time with and, and to kind of share life's moments with moving forward. But, um, yeah, I mean, team aspects always been, uh, you know, I said pretty, pretty important to me. Um, and I think it's just a great way. Um, you know, a great way to socialize. I think it's, it gives you gives you some free friends, uh, more or less. And um, you know, hopefully, if you're a good enough person, they uh, they want to hang around you for a while. Yeah, no doubt about that. You tell me, you know, that A&M visit was your worst visit. Um, we've had the opportunity to speak with Coach Denton frequently here on this show. I love Steve Denton. Talk about just the moment he sits down and starts chatting, I'm locked in. I'm like, oh, what is he going to say next? You're never quite sure. Um for our listeners or parents of listeners who have kids going through that college process, you know, I'm curious, what were, were you looking for? What was it ultimately about A&M that, despite the visit, locks you in? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, Coach Denton in itself, he's he's a class act, knows from day one what what he expects from you and knows what he's actually looking for your, in, in your game. I mean, he's probably one of the only coaches that can, um, I think, really understand and really dive into what it takes to be a high-level player. Um, you know, he's done it with a bunch of different guys. You look at Austin, you look at me, you look at Arthur, um, Harrison Adams, Shane and Sand, guys who have been on the tour for here and there. But, um, you know, he's just, you know, a prime example of a guy who can keep just turning out players. Um, but uh, on the other side of the non-tennis part, he's also a guy that just truly cares, um, wants what's best for you. And his goal, and at least his motto is, is that after these four to five years that you spend with him, he's trying to make a better person leaving Texas A&M and hopefully you leaving Texas A&M a better place than where it was when you first came to school. So that was really what kind of interested me in the beginning. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think it's, he's got the more old school feeling. Um, so my dad's definitely along those lines. So, you know, I think it felt more comfortable, more home vibes for me. And uh, yeah, it was just an easy choice at the end of the day. When Harrison and Shane showed up without Mitchell Kruger, were you like, ah, you guys can go? Like, you know, we really just wanted Mitch. Yeah, um, I would like to say that was the case. I mean, obviously the whole Mitch <laughs> thing, I, I was ended up being Mitch's, I was Mitch's host. Um, so for him to to choose the, the pro route, which, you know, ended up working out for him and um, obviously we would have loved to have had him on the team, but I mean, that team would have been scary. I mean, we always talk about what it could have been. And in, in my opinion, I think Steve would probably agree. I think our team and for who we had, I think we just always kind of a little underachieved, but um, you know, I always give Mitch a hard time that maybe he was the missing piece, but, uh, <laughs> make him feel bad for a little while. Oh, deservedly. So um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I remember because I was class of 2013 in high school and I just remember looking at that 12 class, and it was Kruger and Vincent and Adams, and you're like, oh, my God. Like, this Texas is who tennis I, was nails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I also am curious, and again, this is just me nerding out. I imagine some of our listeners always enjoy this. Has Jeremy Efferding ever done something ever in his life that makes you think, oh, that's a bad guy? Because the rumors I hear, and in my experiences with him, I'm pretty sure he's the kindest human in the world. He is. And it's it's frustrating to a fault for me because <laughs> I'm not I'm not that way. Um, Jeremy was my roommate for four years. Uh, I lived with Jordan, uh, Jordan Sabo and I. Um, and so that that was a tough one because, you know, Jordan and I are, are definitely more of the mischievous type. And uh, <laughs> Jeremy was the saint. So it was more annoying for us to have him around. Um but the guy's a great guy. Uh, you know, he wouldn't wouldn't hurt a fly. And unfortunately, I can't give you any dirt on him. There's nothing to <laughs> nothing to dig up. Yeah, that's that's what I hear is that there's actually no. He might be the only human. There's no dirt where it's like you know one time. Actually, uh, okay. What he was he was actually, late on his 2017 taxes. No, Jeremy. Jeremy is actually was in college. He was a stickler for being uh, bet. Someone could bet him like a dollar to do something. Okay. And he's probably going to kill me for saying this, but this is this was one of the more kind of weird, disgusting things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, we all pitched in a dollar, and we were driving on our way to Lubbock for a match against Tech. And eight hours, big Greyhound bus, and one of our teammates jokingly said, "Hey, I'll bet you that you won't lick a bug off this <laughs> off this bus." 
and Jeremy's like, a dollar each, and I'll do it. So we we roll in, and he gets in his you know little two point stance and starts going away at this bug, and it's only like two or three seconds. But I was like, you know, that's the only thing that I could think of is that the guy guy wanted some money for some Chipotle or some firehouse or something. So who knows? But, yeah, exactly. That's the best burrito he's ever. He's like money hard earned, well deserved. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Free meal. I'm on this college budget. Yeah, exactly. That's the early NIL endorsement right there. The A&M exactly, team endorsing exactly. Jeremy Efferding. I love to hear it. But, you know, during those college years, and I like to pride myself a bit as a college tennis historian, I can think of a few better people to ask you. And I swear I want to get to your pro career, some of the thing, not only talk about doubles, double strategy, but some of the structural issues in the doubles world, because I can think of no better person to address them than you. But you were in college in my opinion, in one of the prime eras, the era that really launched us to where we are today. And I think so much of the appeal we see, the level in modern college tennis can be dated back to that USC-UVA rivalry of the late 2000s, early 2010s, where you had those teams and you know, in my opinion, the 2011 NCAA final where Daniel Wynn hits the diving volley against Sanam Singh, wins it 4-3. That's the best match in college tennis history, in my opinion. Um, I'm curious, as a guy who played college tennis, as a guy who was involved in that era, you know, I think that 2015 team, you guys played Virginia in the quarterfinals in Baylor, right? If memory serves me correct and got a look did. at them. And so, you know, how good were those teams and what do you think they did to raise the level of the sport overall. It just feels like they had the sort of depth that we now see every team have. Yeah. Um, I think it's a little different now, obviously. I mean, we don't need to go too much into the transfer portal and how, <laughs> sure. it's, how it's evolving. But, uh, I mean, back then, I just feel and – and I've said this to Nate. Um, you know, he played at SMU, and mm-hmm. I think – I think college tennis was just nails. It was crazy how good some of these teams were without, you know, really having like what these, to me, sometimes these super teams are now. Um, But it was wild. I mean, for me, one of the best matches I think I've seen in college tennis was that one in Champaign. I think it was Puget and uh, Mitchell Frank playing at that. Foot hits the net. Yeah. Crushing. Um, You know, and I think that really – I think that was really a defining moment for UVA. I think that was for them to finally get over the hump and to finally do it. And then you just saw this, I mean, undeniable confidence that came from this team to not be able to know that, like, hey, we are this team, we're this good, and we know it, and we're just going to let every other team feel what we're bringing. And I felt like that was what was a shock to us, not being in that moment before, um, not having these opportunities to really show how good we were. And I mean, Virginia just came and hit us in the mouth straight away. Um, so it was a quick 4-0. I can't probably tell you the difference in how good they are because it was so quick. Um, uh, fortunately for me, I was, I was injured at the time, so I didn't get to be a part of that beating too much. But uh, yeah, I, I got to see it. I got to see it. Yeah. No, I mean, the level, you look at all those guys, right? Like at some point, all of them were top 400 in that lineup where, you know, JC Aragoni's playing six and then five the rest of his career and finds himself in the top 250 of the ATP singles rankings. Um, Obviously, though, you guys had some talented players filter through as well. And, you know, for no particular reason, I'm going to ask you these questions. Uh, Junior or Arthur Rinderkanesh? Both walk up to you and say, "Hey, I want to play doubles at the Carry Challenger. Who you pick and why?" Gotta go, Junior. Um, 
guys got a nasty lefty serve um reflex volleys like no other and that's hard going against arthur since we got made ncaa finals um my last year but uh and arthur's developed like crazy i mean i i think it's it's wild to see how how good arthur has gotten um and to be able to like see what he's been doing in his career so fast on tour um just makes it even more reassuring that you know he he had the game to to go big time and um but yeah in that particular question i think i'd go with junior yeah did you know i mean looking at arthur now and it always helps to be six five right six five big serve that is modern tennis um but you mentioned making the ncaa doubles final with him your senior year and this is how we can slowly begin to transition back to doubles um you know what was it about the college process for him? What was it about the college process for you where, again, you're a redshirt your freshman year. By the end, you're making the NCAA doubles final. What is it about college tennis that allows you to develop in that way? Yeah, um, my story is probably not your tra- uh, you know your traditional story. I ended up doing a few victory laps, had six years in college. Um, you know, had so two- one could argue you were a trendsetter. Potentially, you know, I was, uh, I was the non COVID year before, yeah. before it even started. Um, so yeah, I ended up having a few surgeries and kind of delayed my time, but, um, I got to see a lot of the ins and outs and, you know, I thought the most important thing, and I preach it to a lot of the kids going to school now is I think college is just great for getting your body ready. Um, because I don't really think people, even from a doubles aspect where you're covering half a court, it's just the toll that traveling takes the toll that the everyday like mental part, you don't understand how much the mental part really deteriorates your body as well when you're on the road. Um, and so I think college gives you that adjustment into starting the process of how you, how you want your body to be. And I felt like I was always kind of under the impression to have the beach body to, you know, try and get your abs looking good to get your biceps looking good. Um, but there was nothing that was really fundamentally sound into what my body was feeling. You know, there were certain things now that I'm probably, if you ask a lot of people, not the one to do a lot on the road, um, or much, but, uh, you know, I try and listen to my body as much as possible. And I feel like college makes you aware of what your body is capable of and what your, you know, what your feeling is. Um, and so that was where I always thought, you know, college was great for developing. Mm-hmm. Do you think Alex Lawson didn't have those calves before he went to college? I'm I'm thinking that those calves are fake. I, <laughs> I don't. I, I don't. I don't think they're very strong. I think they're implants. I, I just don't think. I don't buy that. That those are his. Scholars have argued that they're eighty five percent for show. I agree with you. And you oh, hundred percent. Yeah, 100%. that not a single calf raise was actually done in the development of them. Um, No, I mean, to hear that as well, and, you know, for you looking at the early stages of your pro career, not that there's not plenty more meat on that NCAA bone that maybe we can get back to a little bit later, but you talk about developing your body and preparing yourself for life on the pro tour, you know, going back and looking at your pro resume, people forget, you know, you may, you played some future singles events in Joplin, LA, Wichita to start out your pro career. That said, you got some wild cards into doubles events. You had some success right away. I think you won a futures event in like your fourth tournament out on the pro tour. At what point do you make that decision of, Hey, maybe I should be focused only on doubles. And how difficult is that decision? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I think everyone's everyone's goal or everyone's dream is to play high-level singles, right? I mean, I think it's the dream to be able to be out there on what some of these guys were doing last week on Ash and yeah. to have some of these memorable moments. Um, but for me, it was a little bit different of a different of a story. I, you know, went out and played, like you said, my first first few matches, tried to play doubles and singles. Um, and having four wrist surgeries before going back out and playing again was was a little tough. You know, yeah. I think that was where I finally listened to the body and said, it's just isn't going to be a thing where I'm not I'm not in a position or willing to really grind out potentially three or four years on the futures tour for singles, knowing that if I do have early success in doubles, I want to see where I can go and what I can do with doubles and going back to the team aspect and loving that part of it just made it a really easy decision to be like, you know what, let's just get really good at this and see where we can go. Um, and if you, if you can do some things and, and make it into something to where you don't have to uh, get a real job for a while, then, <laughs> Um, you know, let's see where it takes you. Mm -hmm. You're playing at the beginning with a bunch of different guys. I see Lawson. I see Mackie. I see Hunter Reese on that list. Are you playing partner do do from the get-go? And I'm always fascinated what that process is like because obviously, you know, I say a doubles partnership is like a good marriage. You know, you yep, need to absolutely. be able to complement one another well. You need to be able to communicate. Dare I say, needs to be a little physical action as well. It needs to be some hand slaps. You know, you need to know oh, when yeah. the slap on the butt needs to come. Um, you know, how difficult is it for you in those opening months when, you know, you're worried about your own level? I'm sure finding a partner and being on that carousel of doubles teams. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I mean, you you almost needed to have a point in singles to make sure that you could get, even get into the doubles draw. Um, so a lot of these tournaments were pretty stacked up already. Um, you know, luckily for me, you know, Alex ended up having a great NCAA run that year as well. He made the semis, ended up, we both lost to Mackie in, the, uh, in that tournament. Uh, so Mackie had a number on us. But um, yeah, connected with Alex uh, just through watching him play at NCAAs and then also kind of talking with uh, Steven Armitage, who was working with USTA and helping out a lot. And he was kind of the first to really get us going, got us a wild card into Winneka and to Binghamton. Um, you know, and we made the semifinals in Winneka where it really started our, our path. And um, from there we were good. You know, we got into every futures event from there. So you can kind of actually focus on who you want to play with, um, who you want to try out things with, and uh, yeah, like you said, it's it's a good marriage. And I mean, if you get to be on the doubles tour long enough, it's a lot of bad, bad breakups as well. Um, <laughs> so sometimes you don't want to see your your ex-girlfriend on the on the road because you want some time to pass. But, uh, you know, we try to all have a quick, uh, you know, quick memory and um, try and let it let it uh, slide by. But um, yeah, I think in the beginning, it's really tough. You don't know which direction you want to go. And you're kind of attracted to um, what you're comfortable with. And I like a, a relationship with Mackie. Didn't know Alex as well, but Alex came to Nebraska for a few weeks and we ended up training for there. He came to the College World Series. And so we had a great time kind of building a partnership there. And then Hunter, I had known since juniors. So um, like I said, just going back to what you felt comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Are you looking while you're – I mean – you know, you've been playing with Nate Lamons for a while now, and I know again you've had you've had success with a bunch of different partners throughout the course of your career. 
not Nathan, this is where you turn off the podcast. I want you to mute it if you're listening to this. Are you always keeping your eye out as a player to be like, huh, like, you know, that would be an interesting partner for me. Or, hey, I wouldn't hate playing one event with this guy just to see how it works. Is that something, right. you know, because you are a doubles team at the same time, it's not Lamons and Withrow that are ranked 63 in the world. Jackson Withrow is ranked 63 in the world. At some point as a professional, you just have to be selfish. Like, are those things as a doubles player you're inevitably doing throughout the course of the year? I think yes and no. I mean, uh, I'll be full candid. I, you know, I think it's yeah. it's tough not looking at other players. It's tough not seeing, wow, this guy's playing super well or he's trending well or it's it potentially could complement your game style well enough to make sure that you guys could, could potentially team up one day. Um, but at the same time, from what my experience has been, because I was actually uh, the main reason why Austin and I didn't play anymore together after that. You know, I was kind of, um, as you were saying, googling eyeing over some other players sure. and ended up having the opportunity to play with them. And, and maybe it was only for a week or two off, but you know, in the end, you know, whatever your goals are, um, you know, if you're communicating with your team or communicating with your partner saying that this is wants to be a long-term play, like we're going to try and make this work as much as possible. We're going to communicate. We're going to do, do for different things if we're not successful um and that's kind of the path that i've been on right now with nate you know we've been very honest and very open with each other we had uh you know a minor split last fall that you know we communicated through and at the time we felt like we weren't playing well together and nate was wanting to kind of venture out and playing with different guys just to see if we could find our way back um and so we started this first first part of the season as well not together um but uh you know we ended up finding our way back and you know i think it's just as a team and what you want to build, it's you never want to constantly be looking over your shoulder and thinking that like, shoot, I can't miss this ball because I don't know if my partner is going to be thinking that, oh, I need to jump ship or I need to be with a different guy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually if you guys start talking about problems or just things of how your level of play has been over a certain period of time, and I think it does inevitably get to the point where you're both looking. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see a lot of it. A lot of drama happens that way, right? A lot of the off-season stuff, even inside the top 20, the last two years was pretty crazy with the shakeup of guys that you thought were like, they had a great year and then they split up and it's like, wow, you just weren't, wouldn't imagine that to happen. Um, so it does happen, um, unfortunately. And I do think uh, a little bit better communication maybe from a lot of other people, including myself and Nate, um, is always an improving part that we're trying to do. But yeah, I think uh, honest answer, it's tough not looking at other players. Mm-hmm. I still get teary-eyed when I think about Tret Huey and Dom Inglot breaking up. That was my team, you know, two Cavaliers. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. UVA I was ready boys. to rock and roll. And, you know, again, I'll get emotional even thinking about it. But you talk about that communication, you know, doubles so fast. And I once had a, a, a coach tell me that I think it was like 70% of college tennis points end after the return of serve, as in the player's either going to hit a winner or miss it anyways. I am, and I want to get into the tactics, but my last, I suppose, big picture question about doubles, is the communication more important than the tennis? Like, it, I, I really do think doubles comes down almost more to communicating and knowing, you know, I would rather know exactly what my part, well, 
that's not true. But I would like to know what my partner is going to do as opposed to saying, okay, they could blast 150 miles per hour at any moment. I just never know when it's going to be. You know, not to put a percentage point on it, but I feel like communication with the partner is probably the most important thing to a partnership clicking, right? Without a doubt. Um, you know, and it's also the style of play that you guys are trying to play. Sure. Um, you know, you, like you said, I think the tennis aspect comes more to executing in the matches, um, not so much like working on little things. But I think you can do that within respect to what you're communicating and what you want to play, and how you want to play. Um, you know, certain strategies and knowing that like I can look to this spot or I, I can expect you to hit this spot in a moment that we've practiced over and over and over again. So I think that's where the communicating comes really into play um, and understanding that you can trust your partner hitting that spot over and over and over again. And once the tennis comes, then it's just executing. And I think the big part with, with the communication is also having a pretty open understanding to your, your partner's game. Um, and even if you think it's right, you need to understand that he may be feeling something completely different. He may not like to go there. He may be seeing something different from this aspect. And so there's a lot of things. And, you know, I think I, like I said earlier, I I'm improving at it. I think Nate's improving at it. Um, you know, we kind of had a powwow in Winston Salem about what we were wanting to do moving forward, how we want to play. Cause I think sometimes it's tough not to be individually wrapped up in your own tennis and thinking that you're not playing well. Um, but I think if there's certain things that you do well, I think Nate and I pride ourselves in being pretty good servers. Um, you know, it can kind of kind of make it hard for teams. But um, at the same time, you know, we're just trying to figure out ways of being more consistent on the return side and how we can be better um, and more involved in those games so we're not putting so much pressure on our serves. So it does come to a lot of communicating. And, um, you know, we eventually have found something that we feel like is working is going to work for us for a long-term play and, and hopefully we can uh, hopefully we can execute it. Is the servant volley dead? I'd like to say no, but <laughs> but it can be beat. Um, there are better solutions for players um, to play doubles different ways and it's frustrating because I'm not one of those guys to be able to do that. But um, uh, it adds a lot of versatility and it makes it really tough from a doubles guy to play against, um, you know, cause you are kind of used to the, the quick bang, bang, serve and volley can at least quick reactions. And now there's a lot more creativity, a lot more, um, you know, torque on the ball that just seems to uh, really not be fair. I mean, Jack in particular and what he can do on the forehand side. <clears throat> I think I just watched a video last night uh, from two days ago, him, him tapping Joe in the head on a forehand. Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, those are the type of things that give me nightmares at night. What's the worst you've seen Jack hit someone with a peg? I imagine you've gotten some good ones in the day. Uh, probably in that Del Rey run, he got Leander twice. That maybe have been the hardest I've seen him hit somebody. Um, yeah. You know, I, I don't know how hard he hit Mello. I wasn't there to see that in yeah. person. That's definitely one that'll live up there. Um, but uh, I think in person, in the moment, and hearing the sound that that made, uh, yeah, it was probably that 2018 run with him. It's the it, there's a respect factor, right? Afterwards, it's like, look, you know, I hit you because it's the game. There's no. Have you ever seen ill will carry from a peg in a match? I'm sure you have. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I think it's it's more of a frustration. Um, sure. When when those do come out, uh, you know, I think 
maybe the Joe one the other day is a perfect example. I mean, they're down 3-0 early break already, and it's maybe a way for him to get zapped into the match. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, it's not ill will. I think it's more of a frustrating thing on his part, and it's just an unfortunate thing for somebody to be on the other side of that receiving it. For sure. Yeah, no, especially that Jack forehand. I have always felt whenever I've gotten hit, and it's not the level that you guys are playing, but I always just blame myself. I'm like, you should have had faster hands. You suck for not making that volley back. So it's actually on me. It has no, you know, my thinking is always, and it's because you're so angry at the opponent. It's like, you're not good enough to hit me. And so I'm not going to give you credit for that peg. I'm going to be angry at myself. That's a great mindset, though. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're champions here at Crack Rackets. But, um, you know, for you, we, we already alluded to 2018, but it feels like looking back at your career, the big season was 2017, where you make, I want to say, something like seven challenger finals, and I think you win four challenger titles as well. Oh, excuse me, six challenger. Oh, no, no. Yeah, six challenger finals, two futures titles. Good year for you, obviously, overall. Um, I'm curious, and this is where we can start to look big picture as well. What is the challenger grind like? What is it like going from Maui in January to Mexico in February to Tulsa for a futures event in July to Canada and China and Thailand? You know, how draining is that on you as a player? Yeah, it's pretty draining. I mean, especially for me coming out of school and also being you know, a person from Omaha, Nebraska, who has <laughs> never left the country. Um, you know, so <clears throat> after school kind of still basing myself at a college station and um austin at the time was living out in la and we were kind of having a conversation on maybe having an aggie aggie partnership happen and um you know we ended up uh he ended up making that commitment as well and we were like let's do this um you know so he kind of was still playing singles at the time but also was ranked so much higher than me that he almost took the sacrifice and was like you know what i'm gonna play down just to make sure that we're building this team this is what we're going to build towards and um you know that's something that i always look back to even moving forward now with what i want to do with my partnerships and even with nate um is having something and having a purpose to build on and i don't think i really understood that so early on in my career so austin's telling me this is what we're going to do we're going to go like you said we're going to go to maui we're going to go to morelos then Mm -hmm. two weeks later we're going to go to Anning, china we're not going to get in but we're going to go and i'm like you know, for me, my first trip out of the country was Mexico and Austin was, I could see how excited I was to finally leave. And then, you know, three weeks later, I'm calling and telling my dad, Hey, I'm actually going to, uh, I'm going to China next week. And my dad's like, no, you're not. And I'm like, (laughs) well, you know, I don't think you really have a choice in me going. So, um, at the time doubles was the paper sign in. Yeah. So you, you had to, uh, you know, go in and sign in on site. And uh, we end up not getting in my first week. So, you know, I have to call my dad and then also tell him I didn't get into the tournament in China. <laughs> and luckily, Austin got into qualities for singles and uh, then got into uh, the doubles draw with Gabashvili. Mm-hmm. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a, it's a grind. I mean, I think the Challenger Tour in itself, I mean, you can see I'm, I'm at my career high and um, I'm still playing Challengers. And it's something more about just playing uh, right now and still keeping a good rhythm and making sure that you're building towards other events. We have San Diego 250 next week that I'm super excited for. Um, 
but I think the challenger grind is, is all about consistency. And once you can figure out how to be successful in challengers, then it's, it's time to then venture up and hopefully bring that success to the tour level. You've had the chance to play tour level events. Obviously I mentioned the 2018 title, the 2018 final as well. You just played the U S open, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Is there that big of a difference in level between the challengers and the, you know, ATP tour level events? Because to my naked eye, especially on the doubles court, I just feel like the margins in a doubles match, it's like, okay, that team made three more returns today. And that's why they won. Like I, I so often, I, I think it comes down to execution as opposed to a clear tactical advantage. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I mean, I think it's execution and belief. Um, you know, I think these guys at the higher level believe and they've seen it enough to experience that we in these bigger moments where guys from the challenger level or guys kind of playing their first couple of tour events uh, or grand slams will maybe have nerves or they won't have this belief that they've been there before and been able to kind of repeat what they do in the challengers so easily. I mean, you can see guys have so much challenger success and then really not have a tough time transitioning, but it's, you know, really having a difficult time understanding the differences, even though that level is super small. I mean, I think the perfect example was Nate and I last year, you know, Mekta Kimpovich are having the year of all years and doubles. And, you know, we end up, I mean, best match I've played in my career by far. <laughs> um, but it's, it's so small of margins and few in between because there's a moment in that match where we could have easily have been broken because of our nerves at the end. Um, and I think if that goes three, you'd have to put money on Mektik Pavic just as a team who's been there before. They're not going to let a, let us hang around any longer than we already have been. Um, and these good teams just make you pay if you're not willing to execute. And uh, they, they believe that they're good enough to, be in that moment and it, it stands true i mean it's we had the the same type of thing for Kulhoff and uh you know skupski you know, a week and a half ago i felt like we're so close with those guys those guys are having a great year and yet you lose you know it's the difference between winning and losing is small and they they stayed strong enough to get the w yeah, you. I think the same one with Kubat and Mello, right? When you played them Wimbledon last year, yep. three-set match was a really fun uh, sort of battle. Um, I, you know, you talked about this a little bit earlier about, you know, having to see maybe an ex-partner immediately. I'm curious, DC draw. Well, two questions about DC. Benoit Pair texts you, or maybe you text him. But how does a, how does a partnership with Benoit Pair come about? Because that's got to be something. Yeah, it's it's pretty random. I mean, the only times I've really spent with Benoit is just playing FIFA, um, <laughs> you know, and ran, random tournaments and stuff. But uh, it was it was strange. Friday morning, uh, I wake up to an Instagram DM from him saying, "Hey, are you wanting to play qualies with DC?" And I was taking the week off. I wasn't planning on being anywhere. I was back home in Austin, and I told my girlfriend, "Hey, like, I'm actually going to leave for DC this afternoon," and she's like, "What?" <laughs> and um so you know i packed up within an hour i was on a plane within three hours and um you know it was at the time i was still talking with nate because we were potentially in the running for a wild card into qualities but I, I was like man I'm, I'm able to get in and you know as a partnership i think you do need to understand 
the the opportunities that <laughs> one of you may have. Um, if someone's able to get into a Grand Slam, I mean, Nate and I split at French Open um, for him to be able to get in. Same thing at Wimbledon had to happen. Um, so things like that that kind of run its course sometimes and lead you to splitting up, not on purpose, but um, yeah. So told Nate, hey, I'm going to play with Benoit. And luckily for him, he was able to find uh, Nick to be able to play with. And uh, yeah, so I get there. Don't even practice with Benoit. Supposed to play their first day against Lloyd Harris and John Ehrlich. And um, it's probably a set and a break on the court in front of us. And I still haven't seen Benoit. Like I hit in the morning <laughs> and I'm like, I'm texting him saying, hey, I'm on this court. Uh, thinking that maybe he wants to hit a couple of balls before going on the court. And ends up showing up. We're probably on court in about 15 minutes hits a couple of balls, ends up going on court, plays unreal. And <laughs> and that's to what we were talking about before, about the whole serve and volley conversation. It's just a guy like that can can go out, not hit many balls, not even hit that many volleys per se, and just go out and play lights. Yeah. Uh, um, we win the first one, and uh, you know, then, like you said, we turn around and, and play Nate and Nick in the second round. Are you going in that moment just like, oh, fuck me. Like, how the hell is Nate out? Like, what What are the chances? I uh, thought the chances were pretty good. I mean, there's okay. there's moments in tournaments now where you're thinking for sure you're going to be paired up against a guy that maybe you've got some bad blood with or, you know, whatever. But, um, uh, yeah, it's good. I mean, I think it also creates a little bit of inner, inner competition, which is healthy. Um you know, and also understanding that, like, hey, at the end of the day, this is both of our livelihoods. So let's just go, let's play, but you know, in a in a manner that we're both competitive, in a manner that we're both respectful. Obviously, I would never have any malice towards him, um, but I'm also not going to be the guy to just be able to to play a little bit lighter or not have the same intensity. And um, I think some people do get that a little confused at times. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, again, I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Just a few more questions for you, then I promise I'll let you go. Um, That same ending of 2021, you go, you know, you play the Columbus Challenger with Evan King. Um, By the way, I guess quick tangent. What's your best Evan King Airbnb story? Because I've heard some good ones. See, I haven't been I haven't been the fortunate enough one to have an experience with him there. (laughs) You haven't gotten the invite? No, I haven't got the invite. I mean, like I said, I've I've only started getting more friends now because my girlfriend is more liked on tour than I am. So, um, you know, I haven't been invited, but I'm hoping hoping soon enough that I'll, I'll eventually grab one. You've heard the stories, though, right? Not many. Like I said, man, I get uh-huh. I get left in the dark with a lot of these. All right, we'll we'll talk offline because we're on the streets. That's who you want to Airbnb with. Um, but right. you know, what's it like to go where? One week, you're losing quarterfinals of a challenger. The next week, semifinals of San Diego. Because, again, that kind of gets back to this theme of parity, right? I feel like you have to have a short memory in professional tennis. Yeah. um, I mean, you kind of nailed it right there. You have to have a short memory. And I think you have to all stand. I mean, going back to Austin, I mean, he was the guy that really first – changed my mindset of how to view professional tennis and how 
you're basically going to lose every week. Mm-hmm. And maybe on a good year, you're going to have two to three events where you win them. You know, luckily for me in that one year that I was, I was able to have six, but I think realistically winning three tournaments a year, that's a pretty good year. And I think if you start understanding the process and the idea behind, listen, I'm going to lose every week, but if I can at least find ways to improve, find things that need to be worked on. And like I said earlier, the bigger purpose or the bigger, you know, reason for what you're building towards, um, that makes it a lot easier. It makes tennis a lot easier. It makes your mental uh, fatigue less likely to start boiling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and that's the key, right? Because it is a 50-week sport because you are going from Mexico to Tulsa to China and doing all the various traveling that comes along with it. Um, with that said, again, want to nerd out doubles-wise. Body serve, overrated, underrated, properly rated? Underrated. So underrated. Make the case. Yeah. Why is the body serve underrated? I just think, I mean, especially if you have, whether it's pace, nastiness, or, you know, just average serve, and maybe it's not your strong suit. I think the body serve is is one serve that handcuffs a player that you're not getting their best stroke. No one practices into the body yeah. over and over and over again. No one practices being short arms, and no one allows for themselves to be comfortable in that area. If if they do, I mean, too good. Uh, maybe Marcelo Mello and his inside-out backhand, body backhand, because it's scary how good it can be. Um, but I just think it's one serve that you, you can finally have an advantage to them not practicing, um, or at least an area where they feel comfortable. And that's like the whole goal about tennis, is how can you make your opponent uncomfortable? Um and so for me, I think it's a very underrated serve. Um, and you know, luckily, that I'm able to have a decent serve in itself. So it's a pretty important serve in my game that I like to, I like to implement. And you know, moving forward, it's still something that I'll always believe in. In that same vein, the eye formation, properly utilized or underutilized? Hmm. I would probably say... Properly utilized. I mean, I don't play it as much. I'm starting to be more comfortable in it. Um, I don't think really until playing with Nate in the beginning, I really did it that much or felt comfortable in it. Um, I was always kind of your straight up normal serving doubles guy. Um, Maybe if a guy was on my return or on my serve, we'd we'd, uh, switch it up a little bit. But um, I think it's properly used. I think it's used in the right moments. I think some teams live and die by it, so maybe a little there. It's a little overly used, but um, I also think it's a great way to change the vision on some of these maybe singles teams who don't necessarily see it um, like that a lot. But uh, at the same time, I think you don't want to give singles guys targets because they're pretty good at hitting targets. Mm-hmm. Are you soft if you play two back on the return? <clears throat> no, not at all. <laughs> Yeah. On the all. second serve return? Uh, I think it's in, in what you feel. I mean, if you feel like you're a good ground-stroking team and, and guys aren't finishing well, then I think put yourself in the best position possible. You know, it's it's all about how you can win a point, and that's where I, if it looks ugly, I don't care as long as we're taking that point. 
It's fine with me. I amen. Um, the one thing you wish you worked on in your game more when you were a teenager? Probably the return to serve. Really? Um, yeah, I think I think it's hard. Um, it's hard getting those type of reps. I mean, obviously, someone can stand three quarters and be able to just serve at you all day. But I mean, you're also thinking for your coach or for whoever it is. I mean, think about a hundred serves every single day on somebody's shoulder. Mm-hmm. It's a lot to get reps in. Um, and now I've found ways to be able to kind of simulate returns without having someone serve, which has been a huge, huge positive for me. Um, but return of serve. Yeah. Wait, you found a way to practice the return without having someone serve at you. Oh yeah. Is this a trade secret or do we get to hear this? No, it's good. Yeah, we can talk about it. Um, yeah, just hand tosses right in front of you uh, just to kind of simulate the motion of keeping a short backswing and then also taking a ball with no pace and really extending um, extending on the swing. But it would be something to, to be able to show uh, maybe one of these times if you invite me back. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, uh, for me, it's something maybe Nate doesn't feel too comfortable doing, but it's something for me that I felt like has really helped me get to a better base on my return. Mm-hmm. Do side or add side? Add side. Yeah, it's a good call. That's, that's the, for a righty, that's just the correct choice um, for what it's worth. Um, you know, again, as I'm looking through, just want to have some fun here, talk about some moments. You get to replay one match. 2018 final when you're playing at the elevation with Austin uh, in Ecuador or NCAA championship round two versus Mackey and Martin. I'd say Quito. Yeah. I'd have to say ATP final. I think uh, college tennis, you know, like we were talking about earlier, it's great. Accolades and stuff that come with it are great. Um, super fortunate to be able to do what I've done, but I think your purpose and your goal or your dream is professional tennis. I think it's tough, tough turning away from that. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably the right answer, but you know, like Jeff Dadamo shouldn't have a banner up at the A&M facility if you don't <laughs> also. So that would be, that would be my thinking there. Um, but fair, you, fair. yeah, um, you know, again, looking at the doubles, and we had, uh, we had a chance to go to the WTA event in Cleveland, and one of the night matches was a night session singles-doubles, and unfortunately, one of the players for singles pulled out of the event, so the doubles became the prime time, and we were extraordinarily fortunate. We got to watch Nicole Melikar, Ellen Perez, who have been ridiculously successful over the past month and a half anyways. Um, we got to watch them when you know play in front of this massive crowd and both of them talked about how the energy they felt that day is unlike what they typically get on the doubles court um i'm curious for you if you feel that as well if it does ever get frustrating with perhaps the crowd levels you see at uh for the the doubles support and you know what we what you would like to see us do as fans to better support all these pro doubles players yeah i mean i think anyone who plays sports loves a crowd, right? I mean, we're, we're entertainment at the end of the day and we're trying to figure out best ways to be entertaining and for people to come back, help, help the viewership. Um, But yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it'll always be a battle for doubles um, because I think 
singles is just the I mean the tennis that we're watching right now with some of these young guys Alcaraz Sinner name it uh Casper it's just it's insane how good they are insane and I think as a tennis fan myself I think it's tough not being attracted to that Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day I think you really from a doubles bias perspective um there's a lot of good tennis players that play doubles. And I think we catch a hard time thinking that we're maybe not as good or not as proficient enough in certain skill sets. Um, you know, so maybe you feel a little disrespected at times from some singles guys because they're laughing at you on court or maybe they're not taking it as serious. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, we're all really, really good tennis players. And I think crowd involvement, um, crowd engagement, you're going to watch some just really, really high level tennis no matter what you choose and i think doubles is a more relatable game i think people play it more and i think people enjoy it more i think people like having that team aspect to it to have someone there i think it can get lonely in singles um especially when you get older i mean it's just tougher on the body and i think if people are improving their tennis and you know nerds like us per se i would say that you're you're constantly looking at ways of improving tennis and i think doubles is a perfect way to be able to i don't know improve quickly and and also take what you've seen from a professional match into your league matches mm-hmm. no i i completely agree with you and it's worth noting it feels like the majority of people do play doubles in their leagues match league matches or as you get older you're playing doubles with your friends if you could change any, well, I guess a couple structural things. Would you go from ad to or no ad back to ad scoring in doubles, or do you like the no ad? I was so used to it in college um, that I think the no ad does it does bring excitement, and but it does bring that element that we talked about earlier with how the margins are so small. It does bring the element of any team can beat anyone. You know, whatever the level is, you know, we could lose to a team that's, you know, 200 or, you know, a a top 20 team could lose to a team that's 60. And I think the ad, no ad rule brings in, brings in that element a lot more um, because there are so many more smaller margins per se um, in those matches. But I would say keep it. You know, I think I've been so used to it now that I would like to, I'd like to have it. It is nice when you do play a slam and you don't have to worry about it, um, especially if you lose the deuce point and you get to at least have another opportunity to still hold serve. But, um, yeah, I, I, I like the no ad. Mm-hmm. I, I love the sudden death of it all. Just that aspect of the, the deciding point is certainly exciting. Um, and, yeah, in the mix, though, at the U.S. Open, it's still no ad, right? Still no ad, yep. Yeah, yeah that I don't get. That's where it's just like, so we're going to play the other two ads scoring, but we're going to go no ad here, third set breaker in the mixed. Would you like to play more mixed events? Do you wish that was offered at more locations, not just obviously the slams? Yeah, I do. I mean, Bernarda, you know, fortunate again for me that I was able to find somebody that I really enjoyed playing with. Um, Mm -hmm. Last few years, I've had the opportunity to do it. Asia was great last year. Um, But it's also funny how those things come about. You know, you're scrambling, texting girls last minute and, got to be careful to tell your girlfriend hey like i'm texting (laughs) these girls for this reason um but uh yeah it ended up being a great uh great week for us i mean we go in just having some fun ended up having a good win our first round and um you know kind of 
got routine in the second one, but um, had a lot of fun. I think it's a great way for, for players and for both tours to interact, which I think there is a lack of. Um, you know, I think as players, sometimes we don't really like when it's a dual um, dual gender sport or dual gender event. Um, and I think it, it does help. I think the camaraderie and I think it does bring a lot more to the game. I think it's more exciting. I think people from different backgrounds, whether it's they watch only women's tennis or they only watch men's tennis, then it gives them the option to watch all in one, you know, and um, yeah, I'd like to see it more for sure. Mm-hmm. No doubt about that. For the record, you say you got routine by Piers and Sanders, four and four. Didn't they go on to win the title? They did. They did. Yeah. yeah. I've, uh, I, we, yeah, like we had our chances, but I would think doubles, if you lose two breaks in the first, one break in the second, to me, that's a routine. Yeah, that's fair. I'll, I'll take your word for it there. Well, uh, obviously, Jackson, my final question for you we mentioned this at the start 63 in the world. Um, you're in a place where you can get into ATP events, but to your point, you also can go play challengers and probably feel a little bit more comfortable that you're going to get a couple of matches at least in those sorts of events. Um, I'm curious, because I want to say, what, 29 years old now for you, you know, what does the next year look like from a scheduling perspective? Do you maybe make a push and play more ATP events? Do you kind of maintain where things are now given the success you've had over the past couple of years with this schedule you know what do the next few years look like for you as you try to continue this pace yeah i mean i think any any dubs guy that's going to be making a push to be in in that top element top 50 top 40 um you know wants a set that steady schedule rather than maybe the idea that you have to go play this week to to make sure you're not losing points the following week or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, it's always been a, a dream to have a set schedule and have maybe 28 weeks rather than 40 weeks played in a year. Um, definitely would make my home life a lot easier. <laughs> but um, uh, at the same time, I mean, I, I think it allows yourself – Yep. we talked about earlier what your body feels comfortable with and I feel super comfortable being able to play these events I mean maybe carry isn't an event that Nate and I should have played but it was an event that we thought was necessary for the progression towards what we want to do next week um, so I think there are going to be moments where I'm going to have that decision to make um, and then also partner wise I mean I think it's where Nate and I end up at the end of the year and what our plans are moving forward um, and kind of communicating that with each other. So, yeah, I'd like to have have a set schedule, but I think it's, you know, what that, that whole purpose is behind everything that I've kind of been preaching about, um, you know, what your goals are and and then developing a plan and a schedule to stick to and, and understanding that things are going to go wrong or things are going to change, but being adaptable and allowing yourself to be willing to change. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, again, you still got some tennis to play this year as well, right? Yeah, you, you, exactly. you guys have cash and patent today, I want to say. Cash patent, yeah, young Brits who've who've been tearing up the tour this summer, so hopefully can uh, can give them a good test tonight and see what happens. A couple of college tennis guys as well, so always nice yep. to see that. And you know, again, always nice to see your face as well and get the chance to chat, Jackson. I appreciate you taking Likewise. the time to come on the show today. Obviously, wishing you, Nate, all the guys success. I I had a hypothetical of who wins in a fight, Robert Galloway or Jeremy Efferding, but we already talked on Efferding earlier. I feel like both of them, like in the end, they just shake hands and they're like, you know what? We don't have to do this. Like, let's just be yeah. friends. 
Yeah, I think I think Rob would take it. I think just because Jeremy would just automatically maybe go into a ball. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what I, that's what I like to hear. But uh, again, really appreciate you taking the time and appreciate your candidness as well. Uh, good luck to you as you end this season. And I do think it's safe to say, hopefully, if you're willing to tolerate us, we would be happy to have you back again. So appreciate you taking the time. Perfect. Can't wait for it. Thanks again, man. Yep. Take care. See ya. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with now world number 56 and former All-American Jackson Withrow. A massive thank you to him for taking the time to chat. Of course, since we spoke when he was in Cary, he's gone to San Diego and I'm sure he's off to another destination in the time since. Appreciate him taking the time to chat. Appreciate his candidness and insight uh, to life in the professional doubles world. Of course, hopefully we'll have the chance to have him back on the show soon. Of course, we've had so many fantastic guests of late on this podcast. Ellen Perez, Ben Shelton, Ryan Harrison, and so many more you name you can find them all here on this Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Of course, if you're looking for updates on every day in the pro tennis world, the Great Shot podcast feed, Mini Break podcast feed are the places for you. Of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has a f- of an earning job to do as possible and makes all of our content available for you listeners. Shout out to our friends at Swing Vision as well to learn more about them and how they're at the forefront of all artificial intelligence technology in the game of tennis. Learn more by clicking on the link in the description to this podcast with that said for our super producer daniel westoff our friends at swing vision the fantastic jackson withrow and all of us here at both crack rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you've been listening to another edition of the cracked interviews podcast stay safe stay healthy talk to you all soon thanks everyone